This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. All right, our scripture reading is Psalm 31. So if you would rise for the reading of God's word. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my plea for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let me start uh, with just a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love your people. Thank you, Lord, that we have um, such beautiful expressions of saints in the past, of really of, of Christ in his darkest moment. Um, Lord, you know that as as we trust our sovereign God, as we rely on you for our joy and our peace, um, you take very seriously the difficult situations that we find ourselves in as your people, Lord. Um, Yeah, thank you that we can just be candid about the difficulties of our lives. Lord, I pray that as we uh, see Christ, as we have a sense of who he is and what he's done for us, it would it would make us more impressed with him. It would make us love him more. But, but at the same time, we would learn from him. We would desire to respond like Jesus desires. We, would, we want to be shaped and formed by your presence for your glory uh, into the image of your son. In your name I pray, amen. Yeah, so this morning, well, actually, I'll start by saying some things from last week. We took some time last week to sort of explain why we call our series Christ in the Psalms. And I'm not going to go back through everything, but the short version is if you read uh, what Jesus said where we got our name from, we're called Emmaus because he's talking about all of Scripture being about him. If you read 
um, how the disciples in the book of Acts interpret Old Testament stuff. If you read how Paul or Peter is writing letters to churches, talk about what's being said in the Old Testament. If you see how our New Testament handles our Old Testament, you have to say, look, it's Jesus in the Psalms. <laughs> but we, we want to understand our Old Testament scriptures in the way that Jesus and the apostles understood the Old Testament scriptures. So, so we talked a little bit about that, uh, brought up some verses last week. And, and here's kind of another, we're, we're, we're in another psalm that Jesus himself quotes. Like Jesus quotes this psalm so that you and I could learn from him and sort of understand how he was wrestling with difficult things so that we could appreciate and, and just be in awe of the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ as he suffered on the cross, but also see how he wrestled with stuff so that you and I could learn and grow from him. Because we're gonna be, we wrestle with things in this world. We're united to that Jesus and we're being shaped and formed, each of us uniquely, individually, shaped and formed to look more and more like Christ. So he's, he's sort of like these, these little Psalms where Jesus is in these very emotional, distraught, difficult places in his life, like this one we're going to see is while he's on the cross, at the, the very end of his life, he's, he, we're getting like a little window into how he wrestled with and how he handled difficult things. And so it's amazing that God has orchestrated history that way, that he's communicated to us in these poems and throughout all of scripture so that we could better understand what it looks like to, to wrestle with difficult things. And so this morning, uh, before I do that, we're going to just read a couple verses and then connect it to Jesus, and then we'll go, uh, we're going to go on with the two points that we're going to focus on. Look at uh, the first couple verses in Psalm 31, and I want to give, uh, we're gonna give then we're going to jump forward into, the, uh, into Luke and kind of see what I'm talking about here. David, he wrote this psalm. Uh, to the choir, we don't like a lot of the subscriptions when it says to the choir master in your Bible. We don't uh, we don't always know kind of the intention there, but there is. Uh, if you look through the Psalms, there's a handful of different like uh, little snippets that kind of say for this to this uh, a victim of David. Or uh, the, the idea was that there was actual uh, intentionality around the music and the 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 way that the Psalm was presented. It was meant to be like it was just. I mean, it, you know you. Some, you know, if you, one of the, one of the albums I think is hilarious is Punk Goes Pop album. You know, you're like listening to like a pop band being jammed out by a punk band. Like, you know, it just doesn't like, sometimes it fits and sometimes you're like, okay, that doesn't really work, you know. Uh, but the, the album is fun because you're mixing genres there. And when you look at the Psalms, a lot of times they're saying, look, I wrote this Psalm to be expressed poetically in a real particular way. And so that's why it says a Psalm of David or, uh, to the to the choir master, a psalm of David. So we'll go on and read a few verses. He says, so here's David in this psalm saying, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. and In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a, a strong fortress to save me. And there's, our Bibles have like a bunch of exclamation marks there because it's trying to communicate the like emphatic, like, like he couldn't, it's, this is like a, a, a very precarious situation. This is a difficult spot that David is in. And so it's, he's, he's, he's pleading with the Lord. He's begging with the Lord. He's like, incline your ear. He's like, listen, help me. Like, I just, you're, he's just in this spot where he's like, Lord, I, please hear what I'm saying. Please come to my rescue. I need you to be the one. I'm in this situation that I can't handle myself. I need you to be the one to step in and be present and comfort and rescue me from this. So there's, there's this huge emphasis at the beginning of the psalm, but he then he switches to say, this is, the re this is what I need. This is what I, I'm pleading with. This is what I'm begging you to help me with. Hear what I have to say, Lord. And then he goes on to just make some true statements. And this happens a lot in the psalms. I'm just just some statements to help ground him, to help encourage him, to help give him faith in what God is going to do. In verse 3, 4, and 5, he says, For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me, you lead and guide me. You are doing this to demonstrate 
your character. You're stepping in to rescue me, and I'm pleading with you, and I know you care about me because you desire to demonstrate your character for your namesake. He says, you take me out of the net they have hidden me because you are my refuge. And then we get this statement, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. It's like he's saying, this situation that's so desperate that I really need you to come and comfort me. It's like he's saying, Lord, you have my life. Do with it as you please. You, I'm pleading with you. I'm telling myself that you're my rock. You're my refuge. You're the one that can, you're the one that can draw near to me and bring me comfort. You're the one that can rescue me from this impossible situation. But at the end of the day, I trust you with all of my being. Amen. And so if we jump forward in our Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 23, We see Jesus use this statement from the psalm on the cross. Starting in verse 44, it was about the sixth hour in the afternoon. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sunlight, the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathes his last. What a more impossible situation than that. Here is the righteous one, the one who is very much in every respect committed himself to God, to honor and glorifying his father. What well, He has done everything right from the beginning. And it's easy to think about, maybe it's not easy, it's more obvious that the death of Jesus was not fair, was unjust, was wrong in every way, shape, and form. There, there, he, the mock trial, the accusations, the scheming, his, his very, the person he did ministry for years with, turning him over and, and betraying him, with a kiss, like nothing was right about what happened to Jesus. And as he's going through the most difficult, the most clearly not right thing that's happening, he's committing his life to his father in your hands. In your, I trust you with all, all of my being. The, this is the very last thing he says. I've trusted you with all of who I am. It's easy to think about the cross as like the problem, the, the not fair, the not right, the not just. But think about what Jesus stepped into as a sinless baby, leaving the glory of the Father, leaving the, the fullness of joy face-to-face -face with God the Father and stepping into time and not even stepping into time when God created everything and it was good, right, and beautiful and perfect and, and God said, wow, look, everything I've made is very good. He stepped into time to suffer when things were broken and miserable. How fair is that? What good is that for him to leave the fullness and the glory and the majesty of the Father and to step into a broken world. So Jesus isn't just relying on God. Jesus is just asking for his Father to sustain him at his final moment. 
leading all of his life as he's dealing with the, the, the Pharisees tearing him down. As a teenager, his mom and dad not understanding him, like pick a, an aspect of his life. There's a, there's a difficult things that he's wrestling with his entire life. And he's, he's pleading with his heavenly father to be the one to work and to rescue him from day one until his time on the cross. We just see that unjust situation most vividly when he's nailed to the cross. And thankfully, for most of us, we will probably never be in that intense of a situation. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, the Christians have been in very intense difficult, seemingly impossible situations. I mean, you can read some of the uh, interesting biographical stuff from, even from World War II. I mean, there's like, there's a whole, I mean, Christians have been in situations that are life and death, that are, involve torture, that are just, like, involve people scheming to destroy them. But, we don't, I mean, I'm thankful. We're not in that place right now. And, you know, pray to the Lord that we don't ever need to be in that place. We can trust him that he'll give us the grace we need for whatever he's bringing us into. But you know we're in difficult situations where we don't see our way out. <laughs> you and I wrestle with things in the world that just doesn't, you know, I was thinking of a handful of different ways to phrase it. We can say, this isn't fair. God, you've brought me here and this isn't fair. We can say, what hope is there? We're looking at an issue in front of us and we're saying, we're throwing up our hands and saying, what, what hope is there? We can, we can say, I think, man, we, we want to know, like we like to figure things out. We can say, what good is this? Like, what is the point of this thing that I have to deal with? What, what good is this? We can say that was small, little things that annoy us to big, serious life problems. And we say, Lord, what is the point? Another thing we can say that sort of expresses this idea of just sort of an unsolvable problem is, there's no way I could. <laughs> there's no way I could. Maybe God's brought a circumstance in your life and say, there's no way I could. Maybe you're looking at something and you're saying, there's no way I could. And here's Jesus at his most desperate moment, crying out and saying, Lord, I trust you with every part of my being. And the, we know he rose him from the dead. <laughs> like, like, like God rescued him. He did. Like, as he, he gave up his spirit, trusting God that that wasn't the end. And now there's an empty tomb and Jesus is sitting on the throne. But he's helping us in this little moment. He's helping us know how to wrestle with, know how to deal with, know how to like make sense of those situations that we're like, how do I deal with this? And we're gonna focus on just kind of like two things, and I'll talk around it as we walk through the psalm. We're going to focus on just this reality that when we're in these situations that are just not solvable, that are difficult, that seem hopeless, I think God is calling us to actively wait. To actively wait. He's calling us to do something and not do something. And if you look at the very end of the psalm, Psalm 31, that's kind of where this is coming from. He ends the psalm with be strong, verse 24, be strong and let your heart take courage, all of you who wait for the Lord. Yes, all of you who wait for the Lord. And it's one of those kind of like Christian-y things, like I'm waiting on the Lord, you know? hear people say that, which is good. We should wait on the Lord. 
Um, but what does that mean? <laughs> like, and so I kind of want to talk around that a little bit as we go through the psalm. How, when we're dealing with these just like seemingly impossible things, do we actively wait? Like we're, what is God calling us to do? And where do we just wait on? What does it mean to just wait? Because waiting is very not active. So uh, listening to a, uh, a comedian I don't even really remember, but he was, he's like, I was standing in line somewhere. There's like four people in line and I'm there on my phone and in front of me is a psychopath just staring off into space, not on his phone. He's like, get on your phone. <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> how can you just stand there and wait and not be on your phone? He was just like, then he goes off about how we should all be on our phones more as a funny joke. But, <laughs> but that's a, like, we don't like to wait. Like standing in line and doing nothing and waiting is a funny, people can point to that and be like, that's crazy, who would do that? Because it's kind of true, like we need some things. And so we're dealing with difficult situations, we're dealing with wrestling with what God is doing in our lives. The idea of not doing anything is like kind of painful. But I think what God is calling us to do, what, where we're called to be active in this psalm, I think is where, we, where Jesus is teaching us how to deal with these difficult situations. So let's move a little bit forward in the psalm. Verse 6. It says, I hate those. Could, uh, a little footnote, it could say you hate those. I think it works either way. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. But I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. And I, I kind of, maybe I read, look what he says. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I don't, I don't think that is, um, that, should, that probably makes us a little uncomfortable. <laughs> Like if um, someone walked up to you and goes, how was your week? I was like, well, I just hated these. I hate my coworkers this week because they, they're so idolatrous. I hate them. <laughs> I, think we, I think we would be like, okay. <laughs> so like it would just, we'd be like, uh, you're going to have to expand, expand on that a little bit, you know. <laughs> um, here's where I think he's getting at. I think what, what the psalmist is saying as we wait on the Lord, as he goes through the entire psalm, he's obsessed with actively praising and proclaiming God for all the good things he's done. Look at what he says. In verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness. Amen. How abundant is your goodness. Uh, and then in, in verse 20, he says, in the cover of your presence, you hide them. For he, and then he says, he's wondrously shown his steadfast love. Like he's going through the psalm and he's actively rejoicing in the goodness of God. He's actively proclaiming the majesty and the glory and the wonder of the God that he worships. You can't read through this psalm and not be struck. If this is, this is what's happening to Jesus on the cross, you can't be struck by the, the craziness that it would be for him to then be thinking and considering and proclaiming the good, right, and beautiful character of God. He's obsessed with that. So as we, as we wait, as we actively wait, the, the God, Jesus is helping us. He's teaching us. He's saying, look, look at the good right and beautiful character of your God and proclaim his glory. And so if he looks at others who are working against that, who are drawing people into things less than God and are, are not giving God the glory he deserves, he hates that. He hates that. Rightfully so. He's more concerned with everyone glorifying God 
and giving him credit and proclaiming the wonders and the bounty of his goodness. He's so obsessed with that so that when other people are not giving God the glory he deserves, he hates that. If you're so obsessed with God being the ultimate satisfaction in every part of your life, it should bother you a little bit that other people find fulfillment in things less than God. It should bother you a little bit. If it doesn't bother you a little bit, you should ask yourself, is it because I want satisfaction in that and not God? Am I okay with finding satisfaction in things less than God? We shouldn't be. So as he's actively waiting, what he is doing is he's regularly rejoicing in the character of God. Actively. This is happening throughout the whole psalm. Now, I think this is sort of the conundrum of the Christian life is you think about the cross and like the, the last thing you should be thinking about is Jesus like praising the character of God. That's where God put him there. But I think our temptation then is we say, well, we, we actively praise God even though we're suffering, we're struggling, we're dealing with the situation. Then that means that we have to minimize the pain and the suffering. And, and the psalm is basically saying, no, it's both. We can, we can praise God. We can say how good he is and be honest that things suck, are hard, are painful, are difficult. Like, we should. We're, we're actually not responding to the situation properly if we don't come to terms with the difficulty of what's going on in our lives. Like, if we're not honest with ourselves and with others about the painfulness of difficult circumstances, then we're not responding we're not actively waiting like God is calling us to. We're not treating it like Jesus treated the situation. Look at what he says. Verse nine, he says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. He's actively, he's not just actively praising God, he's actively requesting God's help. He's asking for God to help. In my distress, my eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. My soul and my body are wasted from grief. That's hard. He's not sugarcoat, he's not praising God for his goodness and then sugarcoating his suffering. It is good and beautiful when we're dealing with difficult circumstances to ask for help from God, to express how much you hurt. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I think that's an encouraging little plug for the consequences of our own sin right there. Sometimes our iniquity, like the things that we do wrong, make our life more miserable. And here is the psalmist being honest with God, asking for help, knowing that it was his iniquity that put him in this situation. And we don't know like how much or what, you know, like I think we're, we're like a mixed bag of motives, right? Like sometimes we're trying to honor the Lord and we end up in a difficult place. Sometimes we're obviously just ignoring him and we end up in a difficult place. And most of the time that's somewhere in between that. But he says, my strength fails because of my sin, because of my iniquity. Like that's why I'm here, Lord. We can... 
we can go to our Heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us, who, who is faithfulness. He, he talks about the faithfulness of God. He's like committed to us. It's the Hebrew word hesed. Like his covenant, we celebrated a wedding and we said vows yesterday because we're talking about the commitment of the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband. Like that's meant to be a weighty commitment. God's way more committed than that. Way more, he's, he's, his commitments never vary. He's not less committed to you last week because you were a sinner worse and more committed to you next week when you do things less sinfully. He is committed to you if you're one of his children. So we can go to him with our sin and say, Lord, it's my failures that have put me in this position. I need your help. We can be active about admitting that we need help, even if it's our fault, <laughs> even if it's our fault. Now, if you're tracking with me a little bit and you're saying, okay, well, if this is insight into what Jesus is saying on the cross or thinking or feeling, like what's going on in his head and he's helping us wrestle with all this stuff, you're like, aha, he didn't sin. So what's this doing in here? What, what, well, how can... How could, if this is pointing us forward to what Christ is saying, if this is pointing us forward to the perfect man who is put on the cross, how can we rest, how do we like fit this in here? It says, because of my iniquity. We know that Jesus didn't have sin. Paul addresses this in 2 Corinthians, and I think this is a helpful just remembrance and just a, a to pause for a second and say, what in the world has Jesus done for us? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It says, for our sake, for you, he made him, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. God made Jesus to be, that's a, that's a strong statement. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. The suffering, the torture, the torment that Jesus felt on the cross was because of your iniquity. It was because of your iniquity. the same reason why we can go to the Father and admit our iniquity and say, I'm here because of my own stupid sinning and plead with him for help and, and say, Lord, I, I'm not what I should be and know that he's faithful to us and loves us is because the, our iniquity was put on Christ and his per perfect righteousness was given to us. That's what we get out of the deal. That's why he loves us. That's why we can go to him. That's why we can cry out to him. That's why we can just be honest about our struggles and, and why another reason for us to actively rejoice in the beautiful and wonderful things he's done for us. We can praise him for that. What, a, what more, there is no more beautiful, wonderful act in all of history that he was made sin so that you and I could be righteous when we're obviously not. Amen. We can praise him for that. And, and especially when we're dealing with difficult circumstances where we don't like see how things are working out and we're like, what in the world? Why? I, there's no hope here. It's a perfect time to say, Lord, but you still love me because you've made me righteous in Christ. You, you are not, your affections are not wavering for me because I'm in a situation I don't understand or because I messed up and I'm here. You care for me because you made him sin so that I could be made the righteousness of God. So we're actively waiting. We're active in our rejoicing. We're active in our just crying out and requesting. So what does it mean then to wait? What does it mean then to wait? Look at verse 14. 
says, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you're my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. My times are in your hand. Rescue me. Part of waiting takes humility. Waiting takes humility. Now, I'll put it another way, because I think humility is one of those like kind of Christian-y words that we like to say. It's humiliating to wait. We're humiliated. We're made low. Waiting tells us we ain't good enough. We don't have all the answers. My time is not in my hands. Thank God. Like, he's way more wise, way more powerful. And we can kind of laugh and and say that, but when God brings a circumstance that we don't understand, that's not what we say. (laughs) We say, you've done this wrong. God, I know better. Why am I here? We're proud. We prop our opinions up about our own life circumstances and say, we know better. Waiting on God is humiliating. It lowers us. I think this is what he's getting at in verse 18. He says, make your face shine on your slave, on your servant. Like I'm yours. You've bought me. I owe my life to you. You've given me righteousness so that I can be in your presence and I'm your humble servant. How do you want to use me? How do you want to direct my life? My time is in your hands. We can't wait on the Lord with a posture of pride. That's not waiting. That's complaining. Look at verse 23. I want to make this point. It says, love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. If you feel like you know better, the worst thing he could do is just let you have your way. And he does that sometimes. He gives people over to what they want. Verse 18, right after making the comment about the servant, he says, let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. I think it's easy to like read that and be like, yeah, when I'm doing things the right way and people are whining about me, maybe it's just me. And it's like, yeah, shut them up, Lord. But when I complain and I say, God, you've messed things up about my life. Who's got the lying lips? Who's more righteous than the Lord? And how often do we flap our mouths discrediting what he's doing in and through us? That's convicting. This is why we need the righteousness of God to be credited to us. Like God doesn't love you less if that's how you are. He should. He doesn't. We can say, Lord, my own iniquity, my own mouth has discredited your name. Help me with that. You love me. You you want to see me transform. You want me to just have a, a sense of your commitment to me. And here I am discrediting you on every front. And yet you love me and care for me and draw near to me. 
What a way to say, praise God. <laughs> what, what, a, what a way to actively rejoice in his steadfast love for us. If we feel just a sense of our own unworthiness, and then we realize that in that, God is still drawing near to his people, close to him, and loves us and cares for us, how do we not say, praise God? How do we not look at Christ and say, that's what I need? Waiting takes a little humiliation so that we just recognize that he's wiser, that we don't understand, but he's more loving than we could ever imagine. But if we're going to actively wait, if we're going to rejoice, if we're going to request for help, but we're going to kind of know our place and realize that we're his servants and we're just here to honor him, it takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of trust. Jesus was a real man. And I think we like to, you know, like he had superpowers, you know, like the cross was hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was God, you know, like he handled it. But he was a real person. Like the Bible goes out of its way to communicate to us that he felt and understood and sympathized with us in the brokenness and the weakness and everything that's going on. Jesus knew his Bible, yes. Praise God, yes. God promised him a kingdom so that he would reign forever. How much trust did he have to have in his father on his way to the cross? getting mocked by the nation he came to rescue, getting betrayed by a close friend, having every other disciple basically scatter. Like nothing is going well in the last hours of Jesus's life. I mean, if it was, ba- it was bad enough to like walk into the broken world and trust what God was doing. Now, he had to trust God with everything. He had to trust God when he was already beaten, whipped, tortured, mocked, and then laid out and had the nails hammered in his hands. This is what the psalmist is encouraging us. Verse 14 says, I I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. You're, you are my, I, I, I am proclaiming your name. I'm saying that the God of heaven that I worship is my God. That's who, that's who I'm putting my trust in. Verse seven, I'm, I know I'm kind of bouncing around, but these themes are sort of throughout the psalm, this idea of trust. So we'll go back to verse six first. He says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless, but I, I trust in the Lord. I trust in the Lord. He gives a request. He says, I, or he says, I will rejoice. You, you've known the distress of my soul. Like I'm, I'm, I'm pleading with your help. It's a, uh, th- that verse is like, uh, the, the verbs there are sort of denoting like a continuous action. Like, Lord, I'm just crying out to you. And then in the next verse, it's interesting. In verse 8, it says, And you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. So it's almost like when I first read that, I was like, wait a minute. This whole psalm is about, like, asking for help. And he's like, oh, I'm fine. Like, when I first read that, I was like, oh, it's fine. And I'm like, that, which is like, didn't, it didn't fit in my understanding of the psalm. And so what's interesting is it's a it's the perfect tense. It's a verb that's saying, this has happened before. You've rescued me. Like I can look, and I think we can, when, we, when we're so kind of in this headspace of things that are going wrong or complicated or we don't see a way out, we don't stop to look back and see how many times God has rescued us. We don't stop to dwell on and to consider the fact that we have, messed things up before and he's been faithful. 
He's, he has put us in a broad place, a, a comfortable place, in a, in a, in a in the, sort of like this idea where it's like an easy path. He's brought us to good places before. We're not going to trust. We need, when we're in these situations where we don't understand and we're struggling and we're wrestling with it and we just saying, why God? And we don't trust him. It's If we don't take a moment to say, God, you've come through on so many fronts at so many times, that's why I can trust you. He, he's calling us to wait, but not be ignorant of the things that God has done in our lives in the past. We have strength to wait. We can actively wait. We can trust God if we actually take some time. And I'm not, obviously it's not just that simple, but it helps a lot to just consider the ways that God has been very faithful. Waiting takes a lot of trust. Verse 21, he kind of comes back to this. Blessed be the Lord. I mean, think about Jesus on the cross, knowing these words. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. He's, co- he's committed. This is, a, this is this idea of hesed. It's like he's, he's completely demonstrated the reality that he is committed to me. And it says, when I was in a besieged city, um, there's some interesting things in scripture and extra biblical stuff. When a city is besieged, that's like the worst. I, and I don't want to get into some of the gory details. Maybe I'll, I'll say one of the one that's kind of funny, but also if you're in that situation, it's terrible. One of the armies that comes and besieges Jerusalem are mocking them and saying, hey, if you don't, if you don't, give up you're where you're in the city like walled off you know like no one can kill you but you're but they cut off all your supplies and stuff like you have you have you have no way to get more food or water with tens of thousands of people trapped it's like the worse than covid you know it was covid without uber eats you know so you're you're in a besieged city and he's like you're going to eat your own dung like there's some really graphic like the besieged city and the image of that in scripture is like worst case scenario. So much so that the book of Lamentations is actually sort of like a poetic expression of that happening to have us help us understand the tortures and the torments and the suffering of Jesus himself. He wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. And I love this. I've said in my alarm because I'm the kind of guy that, like, my off-the-cuff reaction is, like, what comes out sometimes too much. And so I have to, like, I'm learning that that reaction in my head is, like, when I stop and then I think about it for a little bit and then I say, um, that's really hard for me. But Bridget helps me with that. <laughs> I said in my alarm or my haste, I am cut off from your sight. Like, I was quick to say, you don't care about me. And that's, I mean, that's very true when we're struggling. Like, we're, we're quick to say that God has kind of blown us off. And maybe we don't use those words. But we're quick to say he's messed something up. But he encourages us and says, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. You heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. I think this little paragraph is sort of separated in your Bible. I think that we're in these difficult times and we're quick to kind of blame God. But when we cry to him for help, when we actually actively request help, when we, when we actively praise him, when we have the humility to wait on him, when we we're, we're, we're want to trust him more and we think about the ways that he's rescued us, when we're in those difficult times, he's faithful to demonstrate his love and character to us. Like, there are dark times in my life where I've never felt closer to God. 
Because when we cry out to him, when we go to him, when we plead with him, when we humble ourselves and recognize what he's doing, he, he wants to draw near to you. He wants you to have a tangible, a palpable, a taste of, you can like sense that he's there and he's with you and he is God with us, Emmanuel, walking through these things with us. I think that's why he can say, he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I'm in a besieged city. When I'm struggling and I plead with the Lord and I rejoice in him and I humble myself, he rewards us with more of his presence. He rewards us with more of his presence. So I think when we actively wait, the last couple of verses here kind of leave us with this exhortation for those of us who are struggling. He says, be strong and let your heart take courage. Be strong and let your heart take courage. All you who wait for the Lord. Those are the words of Jesus on the cross in the worst place possible to encourage you. He knows. He gets it. He feels it. And he says, if you're going to actively wait on the Lord, let your heart take courage. God will reveal himself to you and you can enjoy more of his presence and then praise him for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, yeah, these are weighty things, Lord. Um, I'm thankful that you, in your wisdom, have brought us to this place today. Lord, I'm thankful that yeah, if your spirit is convicting us of ways that we have just discredited what you're doing in our life. Lord, I thank you that you're, you're working in and through the Spirit to help us see what is sin, but also what is righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would just be a people who can't help but proclaim the wonders and the glory and the majesty and the overwhelming goodness of your character. Not because we think it's like, the thing that we should do, but because we, we believe it, we have a sense of it, we can't help but say it's so awesome. <laughs> help us with that, Lord. In your name I pray, amen.